Welcome to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Donald Miller. I'm joined by my co-host, J.J. Peterson. Hi, J.J. Hi, Don. Listen, are you a perfectionist? No. You're not? <laughs> no, I am not. <laughs> in any area, because I tend to be a perfectionist in some things, but not in yeah, others. Yeah, I mean, I guess I like excellence, yeah. but I would say I'm, I am not a perfectionist. I get to the point where I think the scales tip. Because I can continue working on something over and over yeah. and over again, but the scales tip to where it's a law of diminishing returns. I want to get something out there, and I have this a little bit from my experience working with people and writers in Hollywood. Because yeah. you think you hand them the perfect thing, right. and oh, they're going to the end product. It, yeah. yeah, there's so and much then the red lines, it, and then the director changes exactly. It. So you actually have to be willing to let go, and yeah, so you that. can't just hard. like spend time getting it to what you think is perfect because other eyes are going to get on it and they're going to use it the way that they want to. And so I feel like get something out there, get eyes on it, get people practice using it, get the experience Mm -hmm. going and let it become perfect in the process of being used. It's so funny. I've come so far because I used to think that a real artist, a really good artist is basically going to be a perfectionist. I mean, you're just not going to let this thing go. Yeah. My books would rarely need very much of an editor. I mean, they got to correct my bad spelling or something like that. But you know, I just hone it in, hone it for two years. You know, I've worked on the same book for two years. Then I I slowly realized that prose actually, well, I got better at writing, so I didn't have to take so long. But what I was really thinking was that my work was precious. Mm. And what I love Mm. about the interview that we're about to do is Seth Godin, I mean, he would probably say, if you think your work is precious, (laughs) it's really your ego. (laughs) It's nothing to do with serving your reader. And you, you really need Gollum. to, yeah, at some point, <laughs> look, you've got a, an excellent product and it's going to solve a problem. You need to get it out there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I just recorded the audio book for building a story brand and I recorded it in the very studio where I had recorded through painted deserts. Mm-hmm. No, it, it might've been a million miles in a thousand years. Oh, it was a million miles in a thousand years. I recorded it in the same studio. And during the recording of the audio book, finished the book, recording the audio book, hated it so much that rewrote the ending. So if you actually get the audio book of million miles and the physical book they're completely different (laughs) so literally like i never i would never stop and i I don't even have my own books in my home because i just want to edit them yeah (laughs) (laughs) i have to keep them away from me and that is not true anyway so i just recorded the new book there were two little lines i wanted to change and i was just very proud of myself i was like you know we're going to ship this 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 is going to solve a lot of problems yeah thank you i'm coming a long way we're talking about this because this is a philosophy of seth godin yeah he says ship it yep Create something that solves a problem, do it extremely well, and ship it. So don't it let makes it, money so you can do it again. Yeah, don't let it be precious. <laughs> anyway, if you're somebody who's a perfectionist and you're, you're holding on to things and your work is precious, <laughs> then you're going to love this interview with Seth. I don't want to wait any longer. Here's my conversation with Seth Godin. Seth, thanks for being on the podcast today. Well, it's a pleasure. Thank you for doing it. I know it's a lot of work to show up every time. You and I had dinner maybe three or four months ago. It was one of those interesting dinner conversations I've ever had. I said nothing the entire time. It was you, me, Dave Ramsey, and Brad Thor, who writes CIA Navy SEALs suspense novels. If that's not an odd group of people or a good cohort, I don't know what is. You were fascinating to me because you you strike me as the kind of person who sees almost every aspect of life from an alternative perspective. Even as you talk to Brad, you talk to him about You know, why would you write a book when you could not go with a publisher, write in serial fashion, sell it straight to Amazon, sell each segment much shorter, easier to write for four bucks and keep most of the cash yourself? 
I saw Brad's eyes. He was actually thinking to himself, why in the world am I doing it this way? Have you always been the kind of person who just sees business from an alternative perspective? Well, it's a lot of work. And I don't think I do it naturally. I actually huh. put some effort into it. You know, in our conversation with Brad, he was sharing a lot of discontent that he had about the situation that he was in, even though he's one of the most successful people in his field. So my instinct trained from doing this work is to understand, all right, well, which parts of what you're stuck on are really stuck and which parts are just a habit? And if we can get to the who's it for and the what's it for, then you can straighten out your work. You know, in my case, looking at my status on the bestseller list, thinking about one-star reviews, thinking about uh, people who didn't get my stuff was making me unhappy. And I said, but why do I need to expose myself to any of those things? So I turned off comments on my blog. I stopped reading my Amazon reviews. My work got better. My life got better. And I wasn't stuck in a situation of my own doing. Do you have feedback loops? Do you like feedback loops? What's the line between cutting the noise out and actually listening to the needs of the market? How do you do that? How do you walk that line? Well, you know, there's lots of kinds of feedback. It turns out, for example, that if you have a new logo for your organization, everyone thinks they have something to say about it because everyone has seen a logo in their lifetime. You don't need that sort of feedback. On the other hand, what a gift if someone who's smart and knows what you want can point out something to you that your flies unzipped or you didn't say the thing you meant to say. That's priceless. So I work really hard at dividing those two categories. There are people in my life, some of whom I pay, many of whom I don't, who will look me in the eye and give me non-anonymous feedback that's transformative. You know, Bob Dorf, the great PR guy, gave me a piece 15 years ago that I still think about every single time I get up to give a speech. That's priceless. But all the stuff from the crowd in the stands, I don't get it. You know, a friend of mine went to the theater a couple of nights ago and the woman in the row behind her drank so much she threw up during the play. Now, if you're the actor in this one-man show, you could take it personally, or you could just say to yourself, you know what, this play wasn't for her, and move on. Hmm. What was the advice that Bob Dorf gave you? I'm, I'm curious. I invented a new way of doing presentations. I just used pictures. I invented it about 20 years ago. And so I do 195 slides in 55 minutes. But Bob took me aside and he said, you know, you're just running at full speed and then you stop and it's over. You need a finish. You need a story at the end that people will remember for months to come. And that's what I've done ever since. You got something new called the Marketing Seminar. And you guys are about to go into the story segment of that. Will you explain what the Marketing Seminar is and then can we talk a little bit about story? Oh, great. Sure. I am a teacher and I've been a teacher my whole career. Books are a good way to teach, but they're fading in their power because people don't have the same memories of books as you and I might, and they don't read them the same way. Plus, bookstores are going away. So I've done online courses, and I found that for a few people, they work. But for a lot of people, it's just a form of click-click entertainment, but you don't change. So the marketing seminar was a different way for me to cause change to happen. And the idea is that there's video, plenty of video, 50 videos over 100 days. And in between, we have a really well-done discussion board where thousands and thousands of people are sharing their work, giving each other feedback, 
And it turns out the discussion board is where the real magic happens. I just get to claim credit. That's what I want to do is make this change happen. So we're launching the marketing seminar again in July. It's not free, but it is worth what it costs. And the idea of it is that people who have seen marketing as manipulation or seen it as something they don't want to do or seen it as sort of scammy are discovering that when we market with people instead of at them, we can make extraordinary change happen. And so that's what we're teaching. So we teach things like positioning and permission marketing and viral marketing and stories that resonate. And just this week, we were talking about turning the customer or the prospect into the star of the story, which is, I know, a fabulous <laughs> riff that you teach. Yeah, absolutely. How does story play into marketing these days? Of course, we're convinced that story brand, everything is about story, and it always has been. It's not a new thing. For 2,000 years, story has helped us understand how the human mind works, what people are attracted to, what they're willing to pay attention to. And of course, our big paradigm shift is you don't so much tell your story as you invite customers into perhaps your story or invite them into a story for themselves. How do you perceive story and where does it fit in today's marketing culture? Well, I heard a rumor that you wrote a book. And <laughs> I would just like to point out that as soon as it can be available for pre-order, people should leap at the opportunity. My take is this. When people are buying things, they're looking for a thousand clues and cues. They're looking for everything from facial expressions to how it reminds them of their grandparents. But when people are selling things, all of a sudden they become RFP-obsessed, checklist-making feature people. And that's not how we buy things. So why are you selling things that way? We don't actually buy the cheapest of anything or by most measures the best of anything. When we choose something, when we recommend it, when we miss it when it's not there, we're buying it as a human, not as a computer. And what we want more than anything is to buy it from someone we trust, who wants what we want, who is going to make the change happen in the world that we seek. And it's too challenging for most marketers to get their arms around that because they lack empathy. They lack the humility to realize that they have to do more than just show up with pretty good stuff at a pretty good price. And they have to make magic. They have to be a ringleader, a host, not just a talk show host, but a impresario, a maker of magic. And it turns out once you figure that out, it's one of the great jobs. It's one of the great opportunities, but you can't blink. You have to lean into it and do it on purpose. Are you someone who believes that there are formulas in storytelling? And I, and I ask that for a couple of reasons. One, I'm curious as to your take on actual storytelling. But I also wonder when you sit down to write a short blog or maybe write a treatment for an upcoming book or project that you're, you're wanting to get started in, is there a checklist uh, that you want to hit this, you want to hit the customer's need, you want to hit the customer's fear, you want to hit maybe an obligatory or climactic scene that they're trying to head toward? Do you think in formulas or is it mostly a subjective art form for you now? Well, I've been called one of the great intuitive marketers. And for me, the word intuitive made me very happy. I know the formulas and I don't disrespect the formulas, but it would drive me crazy to be formulaic. And the problem with the formulas, let's just pick an obvious category like screenwriting, is there are 10,000 hacks who are turning out formula-driven screenplays every day in Hollywood. 
and almost none of them turn into great movies. The great movies are the ones that broke part of the formula, right? So when William Goldman hides a key part of what we're supposed to know in one of his books, or when they play with time in a time travel thing, or it go, on, go down the list. It's when you break one of the principles that you're actually doing great work. And that's been my shtick all along, because I was always too lazy to memorize the rules. Yeah, yeah. I've heard it said that genius isn't necessarily uh, going off formula. It's using formulas in such a way that nobody notices them, that you've become so creative within form that nobody really knows that you're doing it. And so my advice to young writers especially is understand the formulas early, and then when it comes time to actually create the work, try to forget about them. Let them sort of exist in your subconscious, but obey the artistic flow of whatever it is that you're trying to create. And then maybe come back and sharpen and edit using the formulas as a structure or a guide to perhaps suggest changes that you need to make. But it sounds like sort of a similar relationship. Yeah, no, I think that's brilliant. I had dinner the other night with an entrepreneur who's raised hundreds of millions of dollars. And I brought up Jeff Moore's Crossing the Chasm. And not only hadn't he read it, he hadn't heard of it. Huh. And I looked at him like, that's like a surgeon saying, well, I don't wash my hands because I don't feel like it. <laughs> Do the reading, man. <laughs> have you read, I'm just curious, have you read The Seven Basic Plots by Christopher Booker? Now I feel like I haven't washed my hands. No, oh, no, 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 no. It's, it's it. not. It's not well known, Seth. But you would, you know, I feel like I'm introducing somebody to a Wilco for the first time, and they've not heard yeah. of it. You will love this book. It, it's my all-time favorite book. He's a scholar. He spent 34 years writing this book, and he's trying to convince the reader that there are only seven stories. There are no more. And you, you kind of think of this as an absurd idea, but then anyways, as he starts defending the idea. Whether or not you agree with it, even at the end of the book, I didn't know if I agreed with him, but he opens doors in your mind you didn't know were there. Anyway, a, a good book for you, The, the Seven Basic Plots. You, you'll absolutely love it. Unfortunately, it's like 700 pages of text smaller than your Bible, you know? It's, it's a lot to get through. I'm ordering, I'm ordering a copy before we get off this call, so thanks. Okay, I want to switch gears a little bit. I want to talk about some of the ways that you do business a little bit differently. And back to that conversation with Brad Thor. You know, here's a guy who writes novels. He sold millions and millions and millions and millions of these novels. He's obviously very successful and very disciplined in his ability to write novels in the long form. And they're, they're thrillers. They're super popular. But you said to him, you know, why don't you break them up into smaller episodic stories, sell them on Amazon yourself, maintain control of your publishing. Will you tell me what you're talking about Tell me what would your recommendation be for Brad? I just want to rehear that again, because I wish I had a, a recorder right there at dinner, but go ahead. Uh, so here's the deal. Book publishing has a customer. The customer is the bookstore. Right. The bookstore has finite shelf space. The bookstore can't take a book every day from an author. Therefore, they pushed back on book publishers and said, we only want a book a year from the author. And it's going to cost us a lot of money, so you got to pay us a whole bunch of the share, and we want you to eliminate all the risk because it's such a bad business. And book publishers for 100 years did very well with this engagement. But now that the bookstores are gone, in many categories, Amazon sells 75% of all the books sold. All the old rules don't make any sense anymore. You don't have to write a book a year because 
the bookstore has infinite shelf space. And a book doesn't have to be worth $20, therefore 300 pages long, because a digital book can happily sell for 99 cents, and that could be as long as you want it to be, or as short as you want it to be. So what we're seeing is that the real asset going forward is the relationship with the reader. That if you have permission to tell a million readers that your next thing is ready, those people, many of them, will go buy it. So now, instead of finding readers for your books, you find books for your readers. If that's the business you're in, you say, wow, I have an audience that wants to finish a book in the time it takes to fly from New York to Chicago. That's my product. Well, if that's your product, find 1 million businessmen and women who take that flight and they need a book a month that takes two hours to read. And what Brad had been saying was, look, it takes me too long to write a book and there's all this drama about selling the next book. And I said, so get rid of all those things you don't like because you can just do the parts you like, please more of your readers, have complete control over what you're doing, do it at the pace you want to do it. So I'm no shill for Amazon. There's lots of problems that are caused by the system, but the system exists. And now that we have this chance to build a pipeline between us and them, either Brad's going to be the go-to or someone new is going to show up and do it. This begs the question, for those of us who have lived through this transition, of course, when I started writing books, Amazon didn't exist. They've taken over the market. I've worked with them and and I've actually enjoyed the transition. But the one tense thing for me is something that you counsel me to get over. And that's this sort of perfectionistic, take a year and a half to write a book, sit alone in my underwear in a cabin in the woods, perfect every chapter. I think my first book had 110,000 words and I shipped it at 54,000 words. And I just wanted it to be perfect. I mean, I, you know, I was one of those naive guys when I was in high school who thought I was going to be the next John Steinbeck. And of course, it's heartbreaking when you realize your mind won't go where you want to go. <laughs> you don't have the intellectual ability to actually do it. But you have a saying that you say always be shipping, that we should just ship it. You got a little pamphlet called Ship It, a little pamphlet for people who can. You recommend getting work out the door. Where do you draw the line? How do you figure out what's good enough to ship? One of my fears is that somebody would say, you know what, Don mailed this book in. He just wrote it because he had a deadline, those kinds of things. How do you walk the line between quality work and always being ready to get something out the door? I I need to be really clear here because it's easy to misunderstand my language sometimes. Uh, I have never said just ship it. I have said merely ship it. Those are two different things. Just ship it in the vernacular sounds like, you know, what the heck? Yeah, (laughs) who cares about quality? Merely ship it means do the best work you know to do for the person you are doing it, and then get rid of all the drama in your head. Get rid of the monologue about people thinking you just phoned it in. Get rid of your perfectionism, which isn't actually perfectionism. It's a form of defense hiding, right? That what we know is that a book or a record or a business that never reaches the market is perfect. And it's also wasted because it didn't change anybody. So my argument is that the only way to know if your work is resonating is to engage with the audience. And today is different than 50 years ago. 50 years ago, you had to reach the entire audience before you got any feedback. Now you can have 100 people read your book and find out what happens. Now you can 
put something on YouTube for a day and then take it down. There's so many ways to engage with the market, not to say this is a test I'm hiding, but say here it is, and then see what they do. To build a website and see what its conversion rate is, and then launch it again tomorrow. That that cycle moves us toward perfection so much better. So, you know, pick almost any household item, an hourglass, a water pump, a basketball. The basketballs we have now have no comparison to the basketballs of 100 years ago. The basketball has been improved a million times. The basketball today is really close to perfect. But if they had just worked on it for the last 80 years, it would be terrible. <laughs> and we wouldn't have a sport. And we wouldn't have a sport. Yeah. But the, you, the only thing that makes it better is you engage with people because they don't know what you know. They don't see what you see. And those interactions change things. So I love books and I am proud of every book I've ever written. And I know that if I rewrote them, they would be better. But when do you stop that cycle? At some point, you create an artifact. You say, in this moment of time, given the constraints I have and the resources I have, this is what I want to say. And then say it. And if it's, you know, in terms of bad reviews, I can tell you for sure that Harper Lee and J.K. Rowling yeah. both have more negative reviews than me. <laughs> I used to do this. When I got a negative Amazon review, I would go to East of Eden and look at one-star reviews and be reminded of that they're just idiots in the world. <laughs> exactly. Right. So they, they have one-star reviews not because they're imperfect, right. not because they phoned it in. That's Steve Pressfield's resistance talking to you. That's right, the yeah, voice yeah. in your head saying, never write anything again, please, because anything you write isn't going to be perfect. All right. I'll be back in just a minute with the rest of my interview with Seth Godin. It's time for Marketing Mythbusters. Welcome, Kula Callahan. Hi. Hi, Kula. How are you? Great. Well, you've got a myth to bust that most people believe about marketing. And this one actually fits a bit into the business strategy, not just the marketing, the business strategy. But what I love about this is it's going to immediately, if somebody takes this advice, you're going to make more money. And it's super easy. You literally just have to change <laughs> a couple numbers on your website. What is today's myth? Today's myth is this. I cannot charge more for my products or services. But you can. You absolutely can. <laughs> you can. And you know what? You should. You probably should. Absolutely. There is so much more value that you can add to a person's life other than just it being a cheap price. So here's the real myth. The real myth is you think people are just buying your product, but they're not. They're buying a lot more than your product. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> I just busted the myth of the myth today. Double whammy. <laughs> Once again, you're welcome. No, but you're right. If you communicate that your product or service saves that person's time. Okay, so you're selling a calendar, a, pl right. a planner calendar, you know, like a desk calendar. You think you're selling a calendar, but you're actually selling a way to save a lot of time, a way to make more money. Reduce effort. Reduce effort, saving you hassles. of Increase you know, motivation. Increase motivation. All that stuff is extremely valuable if you spell it out in your marketing collateral. Right, and the thing about advertising with your price is that you're always going to be beat. There's always a cheaper product and there's always someone who can do it for less. Mm -hmm. But if you communicate how your product or service enhances your customer's life and be very specific about those benefits that your product or service offers, right. that's what's going to win and that's what's going to beat other 
products. That's what's going to beat competition. Yeah. Before Starbucks, coffee was 25 cents. <laughs> but, but what I mean is it was perceived value of coffee was 25 cents mm-hmm. or maybe 50 cents or free. You just got it at you know, your office for free. Right. They actually sold this thing that was worth 50 cents, but they added, they call it, you know, delivering each cup with a pep or something like that. And they added this sort of nice European feel to the environment. They made you feel good about yourself right. by being there. All that stuff is added value. It's intangible, but it's added. Right. And so I think what people need to do is they need to look at their product and say, hey, what else is coming with this? Absolutely. And you know what else you can do with your product or service so that you can feel comfortable increasing the price? What's that? Is not only add value, but invite your customer into becoming a better version of themselves. So we mm. talk a lot about at StoryBrand Workshops about your brand participating in the transformation of your customer's yep. identity. So not only are you selling a product, but you're actually giving them something that will better themselves and make them more of the person that they want to be. And this really segues into us inviting people to come to the workshop. There's a part of the workshop where you actually spend about half an hour to an hour defining an aspirational identity for your customer. And what we mean by that is, who does your customer want to become as it relates to your product and service? So if you're a financial advisor, your customer wants to become financially savvy. They want to become financially wise. They want to become a great provider. You would actually write those things down, and then you begin to talk about this aspirational identity that your customer deeply wants and associate it with your product. So they are buying your product, but they are also buying into this better version of themselves that they want to become. And that is extremely valuable. It allows you to raise your price. And it also allows your customers to more intimately connect with your brand. You say it all the time, all human beings have a innate desire to transform. Mm -hmm. And if you are clear about how you participate in that transformation for your customers, they're not going to care as much about price. Yep. Well, listen, if you want to figure out how to charge more for your products and also how to talk about them in such a way that the perceived value is much higher, go to storybrand.com. There's a few ways you can go through our process. One, you can show up in Nashville. You can register for one of our workshops, get away for two days, get it done, leave with the words that you need to use to sell. You can also get our online course, do it in the comfort of your own home or your own office. Or you can hire one of our facilitators for a private workshop, just one of our facilitators in your team in the place where you want to do it, right there in your office or some sort of retreat center, whatever you want to do. Three different ways you can go through our process. When you're done, you will have the words that you need to sell more products, to change your marketing collateral. You can learn about all three ways to go through the StoryBrand process at storybrand.com. That's storybrand.com. Pick your path and register today, but get it done. It's really important. There's a lot of money in it for you. How important is speed today? I mean, the world is moving very, very quickly, and you seem to produce. You're prolific. You're one of those prolific business writers out there. But people who are listening aren't all writers. We're all in different sorts of industries. You know, when you talk about shipping it, getting it right, shipping it, testing the audience those kinds of things. Is this because we've moved into an age where things, they have to happen quickly or we're not going to survive? Oh, I don't think so. I think there's many kinds of speed. So there's the difference between the dry cleaner who takes a month to dry clean and a dry cleaner who takes an hour. That's speed in service of your user getting work done, your user moving forward. And Amazon and others and Federal Express have taught the public that slow isn't generally better. If you can meet spec, and meeting spec is the best definition of quality, if you can meet spec, speed is better. Define meeting spec for us. 
Okay, so when people say the word quality, yeah. those who are afraid of one-star reviews get all hung up. Their quality has something to do with deluxeness. Their quality has something to do with luxury, right? But the fact is a Honda Civic was a high-quality car 15 years ago because it did what it was supposed to do. A luxury good, like an Hermes Birkin bag, might not meet spec. It might have a thread that's broken or whatever. We have other words to describe those luxury goods. But what I am taking from Crosby and Deming, the two gods of quality, is keeping your promises is what quality is. So I don't think that our friend Brad Thor would say that his books are more literary than John Steinbeck's. But he keeps the promise. They're entertaining. They're page turners. They keep you occupied on a train or a plane. Exactly. So they are high quality. And if he spent more time writing them, they would not be better. There would just be fewer of them. Yeah. Okay. So given that that's the statement, the question then comes down to the cycles of speed. If I can fail more than you, I will learn more than you. Because every time I fail, every time I engage with a human and it doesn't work, I've learned something you didn't learn. So one approach to the market, not the only one, but one approach to the market are fast cycles that are engaged with active learning and then repeated. There's a totally different way to do it, right? And the other way to do it is when Jeff Koons comes out with a new style of art, it might take him three to five years. The last cycle cost more than $50 million. No one in the art world saw what he was doing. He bet everything on building something in isolation. And then when it was good enough, met spec, he brought it to the marketplace. If you play that game, your chances of going bankrupt are much higher because you're listening to an internal voice. And I got nothing wrong with that because as a consumer, it's okay with me if 10% of the people go bankrupt as long as I get the benefit of the other 90%. But if you're the maker, I think you have to think really hard about what benefits you're getting from going more slowly than the competition. Because there are some, but there are trade-offs as well. When we think about speed in the marketplace and the way the marketplace is changing, we can't help but think of Amazon. I don't know if I should be embarrassed to say it, but probably... Almost every day, I get some sort of package from Amazon. I have a subscription for dog food that comes once a month. My wife now orders, I don't know, probably a quarter of our groceries on Amazon Prime. If I need a cable, I don't even know where to go to find this cable. I'm ordering it off of Amazon. If I need refiller for a special kind of pen, I mean, it's just way too convenient these days. Let's be let's be honest with each other. Never mind that. If you can't find the cable after five minutes of looking, you just buy a new one because it's cheaper than spending an hour looking through yeah, your house. That's exactly it. You have a special relationship with Amazon. You, you created this relationship a long time ago. You, you did some special projects with them that people saw as innovative. I remember being a young writer and thinking, wow, is this what I need to do? I mean, Seth is clearly leading the way here. I'm scared to leave a traditional publisher because they give me a ton of money up front, these kinds of things. I don't want to ask you about your relationship with Amazon, but I do want to ask a similar question. Amazon just last week bought Whole Foods for $13.2 billion. They bought the Washington Post maybe two years ago. Jeff Bezos is buying a lot of things. And more and more of us in this business world, and a lot of people listening to this, are dependent upon Amazon. We're renting space from Amazon. We're shipping our products through Amazon. In your dealings with Amazon, what do people need to know? You know, what, what kind of attitude do they need to have going into doing business with Amazon? And what do you want them to know about the way the world is changing, specifically as it relates to doing business through Amazon.com? All right. Well, there's a lot nested here. So let me just 
get rid of some easy ones first. Given Amazon's stock price, Whole Foods was free. It was a smart thing to do for a bunch of reasons, but it's not. It was a cheap price because they had disappointed earnings. Well, the stock price went up. Yeah. Right? So once your stock goes up when you do an acquisition, it means what you bought was free. Yeah. And they bought it low because Whole Foods had some disappointing earnings. Stock price plummeted. Jeff Bezos jumped in at the right time and turned it right back around. It was a really smart purchase. But I would contrast that with Jeff's personal purchase of the Washington Post. He bought it because he knew the family and because Uh, it was a chance for him to be a good citizen. And I think it's unfortunate but true in our capitalist society, we need thoughtful citizens with deep pockets to run our media companies if we're going to trust them to share the truth. And so I'm proud of what the Post has become, and I congratulate him for that. But that's not really where we're going with this conversation. The key here is this. When Lillian Vernon started her mail-order catalog, when L.L. Bean started his catalog, the Postal Service was a monopoly. Everything went through the Postal Service. And they understood they weren't going to have an opportunity to deal with a new way to deliver what they made. That's just a given. That's the water that you're swimming in. So if you're the creator of ideas, or if you're running a business that's going to ship things to people, or you need to have stuff on a web server, the water you are swimming in is the water of Amazon and Google. And if you expect that they will help you get more than your fair share of discovery, more than your fair share of attention, more than your fair share of new business, You are wrong. That is a giant mistake. And that's the deep breath we have to take. So, you know, the conceit of getting a $200,000 advance from Random House was, okay, now I'm an insider. Random House is going to get me more than my fair share of readers. That was what the deal was. But now when you list something on Amazon, they're not going to help you. When you build a website, Google's not going to help you. It's the water. You're just in there with everybody else. So what that means is that, you know, the book I wrote in 1998-99, Permission Marketing, is more important now than ever before. Who wants to hear from you? Who would miss you if you were gone? Who do you have permission to contact? Because that is the thing you can do better than Amazon. That is the thing you can do better than Google. And if you don't do that, you're existing at your peril. We live in an age where anybody can promote themselves because you've just spoken to this idea of you're going to have to do marketing, you're going to have to engage in relationships, you're going to have to build a tribe. And yet we live in an age when anybody can do this. What sort of people stand out? You know, it, it reminds me of, well, you know, I live here in Nashville. And so all of my musician buddies can get very easily frustrated because you used to have to get a big record contract in order to break through because studio time was so expensive. Now everybody has a studio in their laptop. They practically have a studio in their iPad. So anybody can make music. So in one sense, the market is flooded with bad music, but in another sense, there's more of a reliance on quality music now than there's ever been in order to stand out. I think the same is true with marketing. You know, you used to be able to be creative and stand out. You know, I argue now everybody can be creative and everybody is. Everybody's Instagram account, Twitter account, everybody's got a blog, everybody's got Facebook. Everybody is, we're flooded with great creativity. And what makes you stand out these days is clarity. If you can be extremely clear and break through the noise, 
people can hear you. What do you think makes people stand out in this age when we're all communicating so much? Everybody has a microphone now. Yes, you said it beautifully, but you and I both teach marketing. And what I'm teaching in the marketing seminar and what you're teaching in your brilliant book is that marketing isn't advertising. So let's not conflate those two. You know who's great at marketing is Dave Ramsey, not because Dave Ramsey runs a bunch of ads, but because Dave Ramsey has consistently and persistently worked with a tribe to bring out a message that might not be popular with everyone, but is for the people it resonates with. And he transforms them. It's more than just a message. He's actively involved in transforming their lives for the better, which is interesting. Exactly. Or if I think about Amanda Palmer, the musician, you used the word quality when it came to music. That's a dangerous word. Quality means meeting spec. You don't have to like Amanda Palmer's music to admire the fact that she's been very clear in how she's marketed it. She has 20,000 true fans. That's enough. She ran the most successful music Kickstarter in history. 20,000 people is enough. That what it means to be Wilco is not that Wilco is aiming for a top 40 hit because they're not. What Jeff does is he makes music for people who like music like this. People like us do things like this. So these are all the elements that we teach in the marketing seminar. These are all the elements that you teach. And it's in incredibly your- comforting. Those are comforting realizations. Comforting except scary. <laughs> well, comforting for the creative person, person who wants to be creative, I guess. Well, except that most creative people also are afraid they would, at some level, prefer to make average stuff for average people and let somebody else market it. And that's why if you hang out in Nashville or in Hollywood or in places where ostensibly creative people hang out, they're not creative at all. They're looking for the rules and the rules of thumb and the intro to an agent, and they're ready to fit in. If you are truly creative, this is your moment. There's never been a greater moment in the history of mankind to take oddball creativity that's based in generosity and spread it from person to person to person efficiently. We can do this now, but too many people are busy saying, well, what time in the afternoon is the best time to tweet? And (laughs) I'm going to copy what this guy did because it worked for him. And that bothers me because... There are no rules of thumb, because as soon as I can write down a rule of thumb, I can find someone cheaper than you to do it. All right, a final question for you. StoryBrand has a scholarship for young, marginalized, unsupported high school students who are showing entrepreneurial instincts. They can actually go to college on a StoryBrand scholarship. It's a fledgling scholarship. We have two students on it right now. You know, as I created that scholarship to go to college, I also wanted them to have a mentor who was an executive. You know, they have to be in this suite somewhere. They have to go through all of the story brand material. They meet with us several times a year, those kinds of things as we create this program. You have what's called an alternative MBA, and I have a feeling you see education as differently as you see marketing and advertising and this whole world that we're moving into. What would you say to a young high school student who wants to be an entrepreneur, who wants to make it in the business community, What would you say that might have never been true 20 years ago as they get their start? Well, first, I'm just speechless. I I didn't know about your scholarship. It's so generous, so smart. It's so fun, isn't it? I'm really, really touched by this. Bravo, bravo. I was that high school entrepreneur, and it was an enormous uphill battle. There weren't books, there weren't magazines, there weren't co-working spaces and all the other. It's really simple. 
we must ignore Silicon Valley. The number of people who get to start Uber or Twitter is tiny. Real entrepreneurship is about launching something that solves a human being's problem, getting paid enough to do it again. Hmm. And there is no better time to do that than college. And the second best time is high school because you don't have to worry about room and board and you are in the street looking face to face with people who have a problem you can solve for them. You do not need an original idea. In fact, you should steal one. You should steal an idea and bring it to people who need to hear it. And I wrote a book about this and I care about it so much I've offered it for free so that people like the folks you're talking about can read it. It's called The Bootstrapper's Bible. It's easy to find. The subtitle is How to Start a Business with No Money. And the secret is you get your customers to put up the money and your customers will put up the money if the thing you make is worth so much they're happy to put up money up front to get it. It's the ultimate test of the market. Why get started unless people want it? Yeah. It doesn't make sense to wait. You don't need more time. You just need to decide. Seth, what a wonderful conversation, a great gift to our audience. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. Oh, a pleasure. Thank you for the work you're doing. It really matters. All right, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> Man. He's such a good guy, too. He is. Yeah, he's just so humble. Anyway, thanks uh, to Seth Godin for uh, being on the podcast. Next week, another brilliant guy. His name is David Covey. Did you ever read Seven Habits of Highly Effective People? Yes, I did. That was David's dad. It was actually assigned to us in college. Well, it makes sense. David has written a book called Trap Tales. He's actually co-written it with a guy named Stefan Mardix. Tim and I actually flew to Utah and spent a day with David and Stefan, and they're, they're brilliant guys. And the book is all about the seven things that will kind of wreck your career. Yeah. When you see somebody who hasn't reached their potential, and I, I hate to be judgmental, but you know, when somebody's like, well, you really thought they were going to do a little better than that, yeah. they probably fell into one of these seven traps. And what's great about it is you read about this and you go, ooh, mm-hmm. I could have done this. Mm-hmm. And they're interesting categories. It's not just business. It's relationship. It's finance. You know, they talk about the problem with debt. They talk about choosing your career over your marriage. And then they talk about career traps, those kinds of things. So it's really, it's about life. And uh, David is our guest on the next episode of the Building Story Brand Podcast. This reminds me of the interview we did with Stephen Mansfield, mm-hmm. a little bit, mm-hmm. where he talks about the signs of leadership failure, that you're about yep. to, you know, your leader's about to fall apart. It's a preemptive podcast. Yeah. <laughs> this yeah. is good medicine. Anyway, I want to play a little clip of my conversation with David Covey uh, to give you a little teaser here. Well, when you think about it, the modern day society where we live, you know, I mean, we have so much coming at us and we don't have any filtering system. So they have all these things that take up their time, energy and attention that shouldn't necessarily take up that time. And we're perpetually connected to the Internet and electronic world. Most of that world is full of thin things. So we call this the focus trap being mired in the thick of thin things. And that's really what a lot of social media, unfortunately, is like. You know, it's, it's the thick of thin things. I'm, I'm not talking about not being able to keep in touch with people and getting some benefits from that, but the amount of time that we spend on it is, is way excessive. And the other thing, too, is that we have this uh, perception that things should happen automatically and instantaneously. And really, the best things in life take time. And we have to usually be patient, and we have to work hard for it. And we don't have that mentality at all. All right, so that's next week. There it is. Yeah, that's going to be a really good one. I hope you download the next episode of the Building a Story Brand podcast. 
JJ, your division of the company is growing. But yeah. we, we rarely talk <laughs> yeah. about it on the podcast. <laughs> yeah. How many, so JJ is head of a division. How many uh, facilitators do you have under you now? Six. Six facilitators, plus you? Mm-hmm. Wow, so there's seven facilitators who are always going all over the country, and even as far as Australia, Yes. <laughs> uh, to lead private workshops. If your company has 10 or 15 or 20 people, and uh, you don't want to pay $3,000 a piece and send them to Nashville, you can bring one of our facilitators in. It's actually really economical. It's $15,000. One of our facilitators can come in and do a day and a half workshop with just your team. Yep. Get everybody on the same page, clarify your message, show you how to apply that messaging to your marketing. And one of my favorite things is it actually has turned into, which was never intended to be, but it's really a team building exercise because it's Hmm. your team coming together, figuring out what is our messaging and how do we want to move forward. And you actually take a day and a half, which seems like a lot of time, but a day and a half to get everybody on the same page and moving in the same direction. Yeah, it is so hard to align a team. Yeah. And if you have identity confusion in your ranks, good if luck. people are telling different stories. Yeah. yeah. Now you've done, we've done like a hundred or more of these. Mm-hmm. Can you think of a single client? And I realize we're on the air, but can you think yeah. of a single client <laughs> who didn't get a serious return on that investment? No. All right. Mm-hmm. So don't think of it as spending $15,000. Think of it as making a lot more than that. If you want to find out more about bringing in one of our private facilitators for a private workshop, go to storybrand.com slash private workshop. That's storybrand.com slash private workshop. Well, thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Building a Story Brand podcast. Music from this episode is by Andrew Bell. You can listen to Andrew's music on Spotify or iTunes. This has been the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. (laughs) 